history here. Well, hey, take your copy of God's Word and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And at the end of our service, we're also going to have a time where our church is going to have a, a decision to make on, uh, on uh, merging with and, and having taking on a, our first campus in Cape Coral. And so we're going to give you that information. So just want you to be aware of that. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and we're going to begin in verse number 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Let's stand as we read God's Word as we get our aerobics in this morning. The Holy Spirit says through the Apostle Paul, we want you to know, brethren, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify and beyond their means, of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and in earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You may be seated. Have you ever had an awkward conversation Maybe with your kids about the birds and the bees. Have you ever had those awkward conversations? Uh, you know, here there's kind of an un, un, unspoken thought from both the parent and the child when it comes to telling your kids about the birds and the bees. It, it's, it's like this. They don't want to hear about it from you, and you don't want to tell them. But you know you need to tell them, and they need to hear it because... There's some important truth about the birds and the bees that your kids need to hear from you. Well, the thing about awkward conversations are this. It's really only as awkward as you make them. And so if you don't make them awkward, they don't have to be awkward. Well, today, we're going to have a little bit of a conversation. As a matter of fact, we're going we're to talk a whole month about generosity. Now, let me just tell you straight up, I understand that this is probably the high water mark for the month of November because these next few Sundays, nobody's going to be coming because you don't want to necessarily hear a message on generosity. But did you know that virtually all of humanity values generosity? Now, the reason why humanity uh, universally uh, values generosity is because God values generosity. And the reason why God values generosity is because God is a generous God. And if you look at some various religious writings and from various religious people or philosophers, you'll get a, even a sense of that. And so even if you start with atheism, uh, the belief that there is no God, you have people like Richard Dawkins saying, let us try to learn generosity and altruism because we were born selfish. Islam in the Quran says you should, you shall never be truly righteous until you give in alms which you dearly cherish. Hinduism teaches that they who give have all things and they who withhold have nothing. Confucius and Confucianism 
not to be confused with Confucianism, <laughs> said, he who wishes to secure the good of others has already secured his own. And so you hear that kind of universally, different religions. Now, there is a truth here in a person named Jesus, and what did Jesus say about giving? He says, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Did you know that 25% of Jesus' messages were on money or generosity? One out of every four sermons. I mean, could you imagine if one out of every four sermons that I preached was on generosity and giving? You know what would happen? The attendance would be low, <laughs> but my salary would be high, okay? <laughs> now look, some of you, this is your first time here. Oh my goodness, I haven't been to church in years. I show up and the preacher talks about giving. I mean, am I cursed or not? No, listen, think about this. God wants you to learn something. Now, what I know about generosity is this. We all, all of us to the person, we all know it's good to be generous, but if we're honest, we're just hoping other people will be generous so we don't have to. There's been some extensive research that has been done and, and it's actually proven that generosity is good for you. Uh, Hillary and Christian Smith wrote a book called The Paradox of Generosity. And here's what they wrote in that book. They said, intentional and regular practices of generosity have been associated with the release of good hormones, including oxytocin, dopamine, and various endorphins. Endorphins are God's natural morphine. It's connected with a sense of purpose in life. Generosity is connected with a sense of purpose in life, personal happiness, and overall health. Giving even activates the portion of the brain that lights up when winning the lottery or getting a raise. They then say, conversely, a lack of giving is bad for you. It causes higher levels of cortisol, which is linked to headaches, stroke, heart disease, and depression. So it's good to give. Now you may say, well, all right, well, I get that. That's a good reason. But let me just be even more transparent with you that as good as those reasons are for your health and your happiness, those are not gonna be enough to make you generous. Because what I believe with all my heart is the only way you can be truly generous is you have to have a heart change. And so that's what we're gonna talk about this morning. We're gonna talk about the heart of generosity and we're gonna see it here in 2 Corinthians chapter eight. Paul here is in mid-letter. He is writing to a very gifted, very wealthy church and he's writing about different topics. Some scholars believe that maybe this is the third or even the fourth letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. We only have uh, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians or as one former politician said, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And here he is writing different about different topics, addressing different things. And here in chapter eight, we're looking at the topic in which Paul here is connecting what he said in his last uh, 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 letter to them about collecting an offering for the poor saints in Jerusalem. It was the Jerusalem project. And in his last letter that we know, he told them and gave them instructions about how they are to uh, take this offering. And then now he is writing some months or years later saying, hey, you guys haven't taken up the offering yet. And so Paul here is very boldly reminding them about this offering. And he's encouraging them to live generous. Why? Because generous living is one of the most important ways we know that the grace of God has changed our hearts. So here's what we're gonna learn today. 
Generosity is the overflow of grace in my life based on the generosity of Jesus. This is the working definition we're gonna be looking at all month, but particularly in this message, that generosity is the overflow of the grace of Jesus in my life based on the generosity of Jesus. And so let's unpack that. Number one, generosity is the overflow of grace. And we see that word grace all throughout these first nine verses. But before we get even deeper, as Paul is writing to these believers in Corinth, it wasn't just in a vacuum. There was a cultural understanding of generosity. And for many of these people who grew up pagan, who grew up but trusting in and worshiping false gods and goddesses, generosity for them was more reciprocity. And if you're, what's reciprocity? Reciprocity is give and take, or you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And so the first century mindset was that the relationship between humanity and the gods was reciprocity. And that the gods were just souped up humans who had loves and hates and fears and lusts, but had super strength and supernatural ability. And so if you wanted something from the gods, you had to give something to the gods that the gods wanted. You had to meet some need in the God's life or fulfill some desire in the God's life. And if you make the right sacrifices and you give the right gifts, then you will get what you want in return. That was the mindset of the people then. And so you gave to the gods, not out of love for the gods, but you gave out, an, out of an ulterior motive. You gave to get. Now that mindset isn't around anymore, is it? Sadly, that mindset and that first century pagan thinking, that stinking thinking is still around to this day. Because even those who call Jesus their Lord somehow have in their mind that God has needs and that if we just give God what he needs, do what God needs us to do to fulfill some need in God's life to make God happy, if we make God happy, then he'll make us happy. And so if we sing the right songs, if we read uh, the right amount of scripture, if we pray every now and again, if we throw a few dollars into the offering box, then God will give us what we want. Well, you don't understand the God of the Bible if that's your view. Because God is supremely self-sufficient. What I mean by that is that God does not need anything from us, and let alone he doesn't even need us. We desperately need him, but he does not desperately need us because there is nothing that we could give him that he doesn't already have an infinite degree. And everything that we do give God, he has first given to us. And so generosity is not buying favor from God. See, I wanna just reiterate this. When you hear preachers or teachers talk about generosity, sometimes you have the idea, well, they just want my money. Well, what we're gonna look at in this series is not that God needs something from you, not that the church needs money from you. Generosity is not that God needs something from you, it's that he wants something for you. He wants to free you. He wants to help you be most like him, and we are most like God when we are most generous. And so within that context, Paul here is writing to Macedonians or writing to Corinthians about the Macedonians. Macedonia was in the, the area of Macedonia. Uh, it's amazing how that works out. And the Corinthians here uh, were in a different part. And so Corinth in Greece is kind of the Naples of Greece. It was very affluent. 
very expensive to live, and it was filled with talented people. The Corinthians had, the, had an abundance of everything, had everything you'd ever want. The Macedonians, on the other hand, were poor, they were persecuted, and they were perceived to be less sophisticated compared to the Corinthians. But yet, Paul, in writing the Corinthians, uses the Macedonians as poster kids for generosity. He says in verse number two, for in a severe test of affliction and extreme poverty. Listen, the Macedonians were so poor they couldn't even pay attention. They were in dire straits. And yet they showed generosity despite their extreme poverty. Many of them lost their jobs because they became believers. They were living in a Roman empire of high taxes and persecution. And yet, as a response to the word that they heard about the poor saints in Jerusalem, they came up with the idea to take up an offering among the churches to take care of the needs of the poor saints and to send relief to those saints in Jerusalem, even though they themselves were going through a financial crisis. Now, the thing is, is that when we're going through financial difficulty, our view is not to be generous. Our view is to get all we can, can all we get, sit on the can and poison the rest. But here, verse three says that when they were in this moment of extreme poverty, hearing the need of others, they gave according to their means. That is, they gave according to their income. This is what we call tithing, okay? They gave a, a, in proportion to what they, were rece what they received in their life. But then Paul says that they gave beyond their means, they gave sacrificial. So it wasn't like they just ran into some extra money and decided to give it away. These people were in affliction. The word affliction there in the Greek is the word which kind of can be used to as meaning crushed grapes. And so they were going through this terrible season and yet they were willing to give not only what they had but even maybe even what they couldn't afford to help people who were in need. You know, statistically, the more a person makes, the less they give proportionately. A study was shown that in the last year, the top 20% in America gave on average to charity 1.3%. On the other side, the bottom 20% gave 3.4%. Christians in America gave percentage-wise less than they did last year, even in the Great Depression. So they were Christians in the Great Depression giving percentage-wise more than people today. And here's the other thing. People today are giving proportionately, percentage-wise, less than Christians in Africa. See, people who have much often give little, and those who have little often give much. So Paul here was saying, listen, Corinthians, look at the Macedonians. This is important to model this type of generosity. Why? Because generosity is the proof that God's grace has taken root in your life. See, a right relationship with God will always lead you to be more generous, not less generous. And we're gonna see in a moment that generosity comes from joy and joy comes from having a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so it's all about grace. And so verse number one Paul says it was the grace of God that was given among the churches. Now, why does he say, man, he could have just said, you know, those Macedonians, they're such awesome people. They gave a ton of money. 
even though they didn't have any. And you say, well, that's kind of what he's saying. No, he, he wants to make sure to nuance it this way. What they did was supernatural. Why? Because as I said a moment ago, the natural inclination of our sinful heart is to hoard, stockpile, and to protect with the mentality of every person for themselves. And so what they were able to do in their generosity was actually a gift from God in the grace of God. This word grace here is the Greek word charis. We get a word charismatic from it. He was saying here that what they did, this generosity, was a supernatural charismatic gift, a gift like faith, a gift like hope, a gift like love. Some people say, Pastor, are you charismatic? I say, yeah, I am. Because I've been born again, spirit-filled, given grace upon grace and gifts that I do not deserve. And if you're a Christian, you are too. See, we, if you are a believer, you are spirit-filled, spirit-empowered, and spirit-gifted. Outside of your salvation and right relationship with God, the greatest thing God has ever given you is the Holy Spirit. Because without the Holy Spirit, you do not have the ability to live the Christian life. Biblical generosity requires the work of the Holy Spirit. And listen, you don't have to be rich to be generous, but you gotta be generous to be generous. And the only way you're gonna be generous is you have to be born again, spirit-filled. See, you think about this. Generosity, you know, Paul said the greatest gifts are faith, hope, and love. Generosity is the combination of the three. See, when you are generous, you are exercising faith to trust God with your money. When you're giving generously, you are exercising hope because you are investing in the future. And when you're exercising generosity, you're demonstrating love for God and love for others. So why, again, were the Macedonians so generous? Paul tells us, verse five. He says, they gave themselves first to the Lord. Then, by the will of God, they gave to us. They weren't doing this offering. They weren't taking up this money to make Paul happy. They were doing this because they had given their lives to the Lord. The Lord was first in their priorities. See, when God has your heart, God will have everything else. It's like when you were, when you were in the process of getting married and you were going through that engagement process and, and, and you were just having that ooey-gooey, lovey-dovey, that person captured and captivated your heart. When that person that you love captivates your heart and you want to get married, they, when they have your heart, they have everything, right? And then you sprouted out them youngins and, and as soon as that kid came out, you looked at the kid in the face and they were screaming and crying and you were saying, I love you. And that little creature has your heart. And guess what else they have? Your money. <laughs> I mean, we just paid Andrew off a few, few weeks ago. <laughs> you know. They, God had their heart. And because God had their heart, I love what verse two says. He says that for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity because God had their heart, they had an abundance of joy. You know why some of you aren't happy? Because God doesn't have a hold of your heart. But this Abundance of joy overflowed in a wealth of generosity. It was a supernatural reaction. 
that this grace-born, superabounding joy, when it came into direct contact with the need of other people and the the problems that they faced, there was an explosion of supernatural generosity. That when you had an abundance of joy plus severe affliction, there was a wealth of generosity. Now that seems kind of be oxymoronic, right? How can I have all this joy be very, very afflicted and still want to give to other people? Answer, grace of God. See, because when the grace of Jesus has come into your life, it shows itself in joy. You know that song? I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Down in my heart. Down in my heart. I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Down in my heart to stay. But it doesn't just stay there. It overflows. Y'all remember when you were in elementary school, y'all did science experiments? Well, one of my favorite one was a volcano. Did you ever do a volcano? And so you would put, you'd put baking soda and you put vinegar in the baking soda, what would happen? You have an ooze, it just kind of ooze out. We're gonna do an experiment today. Here's some Diet Coke. This represents your heart. That's why it's black, right? But then, when the grace of God, represented in Mentos, when, when the grace of God comes down into your heart, your heart changes, doesn't it? It overflows in a wealth of generosity. See, when Jesus is inside of you, he doesn't stay inside of you. When you've got the joy, 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 it's gonna come out because generosity is the overflow of grace. But the second thing is this. Generosity is an opportunity to reflect the gospel. In verse number six, Paul here is encouraging, saying, hey guys, do you see the Macedonians? Won't you be like them? And so now he's giving them specific instructions. Hey, complete this act of grace. I'm gonna send Titus, he's gonna come and he's gonna fulfill what's happening and you're gonna give that offering. And, and then he says, listen, you, know, you guys are so blessed. You excel in so many things. Don't skip excelling in generosity. You know, if, there, if there's one thing I want our church to be known for in the community, it's our generosity. Like, we could be known about so many things, but if they're gonna make documentaries about our church, I want it to be about our generosity. I want it to be about how this church loves Naples and the nations. 
And so, you know, I'm, I'm encouraged in a couple of weeks, we're going to have turkey drop in which we'll, we'll bless hundreds and hundreds of families in Collier County and Lee County with Thanksgiving. I'm, I'm encouraged with what we do with Love Naples. I'm encouraged to how even I heard this week, some people were going to the laundromat from our church and they raised money and they went and, and helped people uh, pay for their laundry service and share the love of Jesus. I want us to be known by that. Not so that we get press and clippings and so that people talk about how awesome we are, but I want us to go out of the community and so share the love of Jesus that they don't say what a great church, but they say what a great God. And so that's what I want for our church. I want us to be known for that. And I want our staff or our pastoral staff to be known for that. And I want to be known as a generous person. So Paul says, I complete it. Verse number eight, I love verse number eight. He says, I'm saying this not as a command. Like Paul could have said, hey, I command thee to do this. And this would be a new apostolic tax. But he doesn't do that. He wanted them to do this on their own. Now, it wasn't here that Paul is using the Macedonians to guilt and shame them. He's using to encourage them. Hey, if they in their poverty can be this generous, then what can you do in your abundance? Because here's what you gotta understand. Trying to meet others' expectations is not a good reason to be generous. Being manipulated or guilted is not a good way to create a heart of generosity. Like, you know those commercials that you'll see and you'll see this commercial about a dog who's been abused and it's terrible and it's sad and it's horrible or you'll see poor uh, older people who are being oppressed or you'll see kids who, have sick, who are sick with cancer and we're grateful for causes like that but those commercials, they pull your heartstrings and they, they obviously have some effect because if they didn't have that effect, they wouldn't be on, the, on TV but they typically don't have a long-term effect. And often we forget about them because guilt and shame and manipulation will not change your heart. What Paul says is, no, it's gotta be grace. And if you wanna demonstrate the grace of God, if you wanna demonstrate something, then listen, he says in verse number eight, prove your love. He says in verse number eight, he says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. He's saying what the BG said a long time ago. How deep is your love? How deep is your love? How deep is your love? I really need to know cause we're living in a world of fools. And we'll stop right there. <laughs> Paul says, how deep is your love? See, biblical love is more than just sentimental feelings and good intentions. Biblical love is your willingness to give and serve others. And that's a key indicator that you really love a person. You know, I could tell my wife, April, I love you. You're the best. You are beautiful. You are great. And she could say, okay, well, you take the trash out. And I say, no. <laughs> I'm sending mixed signals. John puts it this way in 1 John 3. He, said, he says, if anyone has the world's goods, this world's goods, and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? 
Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. We need a little less talk and a lot more action. You say, well, I got, I, I, I'm intending to be generous. I, I want to be a generous person. I, I'm excited about generosity. I haven't left the service yet. I'm intending to it. You know, that's the thing that Paul here is dealing with is that these Corinthians were going to get around to it. They had good intentions and Paul's writing them this letter. Hey, you know those good intentions? Let's make them realities because the road to hell is paved with good intentions. There's no credit for passion without follow through. See, there's a difference between wanting to give and actually giving. And God is not after guilt trip giving or good intentions giving, but he's after your heart. And he wants to radically change your heart. And as he radically change your heart, changes your heart by his generosity, you will want to share that generosity with other people. Generosity is an opportunity to share with the world the message that will change the world. And Paul says this in verse nine. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we've talked about grace. You know, all right, what's grace? And so I want to define it to you. You've heard me give you this definition. And so we're going to define grace by two other words, justice and mercy. And so justice is getting what you deserve. And so if you drive on Livingston Road and you're doing 65 and a 45, and a cop pulls you over and they give you a ticket, that's justice. If you do 65 and a 45 on Livingston, the cop pulls you over and he says, hey, you were speeding. She says, hey, you were speeding, but I'm not gonna give you a ticket. Please drive careful. That's mercy. That's you not getting what you deserved. But if you're doing 65 and a 45 on Livingston, cop pulls you over, says, hey, you were speeding. I should give you a ticket. I'm not gonna give you a ticket. Here's $100. Go have lunch at Chick-fil-A. That's grace. That's getting better than you deserve. Do you understand that Jesus has given, us, has given us better than we deserve? And we know this by experience. We have tasted and trusted his goodness and his grace every day. If you have received the grace of God in your life, well, I want you to, I want to blow the roof off. If you have received God's grace in your life and you've experienced it, experienced it would you say amen? Amen. amen? amen. Praise God. Paul says, you know the grace because you've experienced it. That though he were rich, Jesus was infinitely rich. Loved, honored, adored by the Father, the Spirit, and countless angels. And yet for your sake, he became poor. He took upon himself flesh and blood. He emptied himself of his status. He took on your condition, yet without sin. He lived in abject poverty and suffered great humiliation. He took your sin and my sin and our sorrow and he made it his very own. And for his troubles, he was crucified on a cross and he did it for our sake. He did it out of an overflow of grace. And he did this so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. 
Do you understand that if you are a born again, spirit filled believer, you are rich and your riches are not calculated by the amount of money in your bank or your 401k or your properties, but your riches are out of this world. See, Jesus did not give out of his riches. He gave away his riches. He didn't give because he had power to spare. He gladly lost his power, became completely vulnerable so that we can have all the love and all the blessings that he deserved and we don't. This is the cosmic redistribution of wealth. Some people say, Pastor, does the Bible teach the redistribution of wealth? And I said, yes. And they look at me and said, you're a communist. <laughs> and I say, no, I'm a Christian. Because the redistribution of wealth is not to be forced by the government. That's lunacy. That is communism. <laughs> the redistribution of wealth is voluntary. See, the Macedonians generously gave what they had to meet a need. But what they did pales in comparison to what Jesus did for them. That we who were poor became rich, but it didn't come without a price. Paul here is saying that those who are most aware of the grace of Jesus and the wonder of forgiveness are the ones who are the most generous. See, the gospel compels us to generously sacrifice for the sake of others and the advancement of the kingdom. We are never more like God when we're generous and we're never less like God when we refuse to be generous. Robert Murray McShane, the Scottish preacher from the 19th century, wrote the following. He says, the more you understand who Jesus is and what he has done for you, the more generous you become. I fear that there are many hearing me who do not, who now know they are not Christians because they do not love to give. To give largely and liberally, not grudgingly at all, requires a new heart. An old heart would rather part with its lifeblood than its money. But here's the deal, Pickles. If Jesus sacrificed everything for me, if I am now fully loved and totally secure in him, then shouldn't that affect how I live my life? Shouldn't I be willing to sacrifice? See, sacrifice is giving up something you love for something you love even more. And Jesus willingly sacrificed himself for me because he loved me more than his own life. And if he could love me more than his own life so that I could have eternal life with him that money cannot buy and death cannot take away, then what should I not be willing to sacrifice here on earth? Should I be willing to sacrifice my time, my talent, my treasure? Now, some of you say, oh, I knew it, man. You preachers, man, you're so manipulative, man. You're just like, you know, man. And, you know, 
And you're like, oh, you just want my money. This is, you're just being manipulative. You, you're telling me all this stuff because you just want more money. Let me tell you something right now. God's primary goal for generosity is not getting money out of your pockets. God's primary goal is getting idols out of your heart. Because when you really think about it, your generosity or lack of generosity reveals three things. It reveals what you truly love, what you truly value, and who you truly trust in. Jesus says, where the treasure is, the heart will be. Your heart follows your money. And if you want to share with others that Jesus has changed your life, then be generous with them, be generous to them, and be generous in front of them. And they won't say how awesome you are. They'll say how awesome God is. Generosity is the overflow of the grace of God in your life based on the generosity of Jesus. The only way you're ever gonna walk in real generosity, which as I already showed, research tells you is good for you. The only way you're gonna walk in generosity is you have to have a relationship with Jesus. You, you, don't, you don't get it without it. Have you ever heard of a guy named Zacchaeus? He was a wee little man. And a wee little man was he. He was a tax collector. He worked for the IRS. And he was a crook. Imagine that. He was greedy. He was possessed by his possessions. He had his mind on his money and his money on his mind. It was his idol. And he knew that there was something missing in his life. And so he heard about this dude from Nazareth, this guy named Jesus, who was coming to the town that he was in, in Jericho. And he wanted to hear Jesus. He wanted to be around Jesus. But nobody wanted to be around Zacchaeus because Zacchaeus was a pariah. Nobody wanted to be around Zacchaeus. And he was a wee little man. And so Zacchaeus wanted to hear Jesus, wanted to hear what Jesus says, has this brilliant idea. He's going to climb up in a sycamore tree. And so there he is and he's hearing Jesus and he's seeing Jesus and he's there and all of a sudden he's in the tree and Jesus is walking to him and like Zacchaeus like, oh, this is gonna be weird. And then Jesus is walking by and he's here and walking by and all of a sudden Jesus looks up in the tree and oh, there's a man, a wee little man. And Jesus knew his name. And he says, take me to your house. Zacchaeus hadn't received love like that. Everyone hated Zacchaeus, but Jesus showed him love. He went into a tax collector's house. That's like going to the drug dealer and the prostitute's house and hanging out with them. And the grace of God got a hold of Zacchaeus' heart. And he got good and saved. You know what I'm saying? He got good saved. And he looks at Jesus and he says, everyone I have cheated, I'm gonna restore four times over. The law only required two times over. He did it four times over. And he says, half of what I own after all that's over with, this guy had a lot of money. 
I'm going to give it to the poor. Jesus looked at him and he said, hey, today salvation has come to this house. And Jesus didn't say, Zacchaeus, because you gave this money, you are now saved. Nope. He was saying that Zacchaeus, you are saved. And because of that, you give your money. You see the difference? You can't buy your way to heaven. Now, you, you all can try if you want, and we'll take the money. But you can't buy your way to heaven. It doesn't work. You're not redeemed by the blood of bulls and goats or silver or gold because it's not enough. See, you don't give money to get saved. When you get saved, God gets a hold of your heart and you're gonna give money. So you're never more like Jesus when you're generous and you're never less like Jesus when you're not. You say, all right, preacher, what do I do? Well, I'm glad you asked. Here's what you should do. Ask God, God, how can I be more generous with my money, my time, and my talent for the kingdom? How can my generosity best demonstrate to others that Jesus is my Lord? How can I use my money, my time, and my talent to reach Naples and the nations for Jesus Christ? Now, again, if you are not a believer, we're not asking anything from you. If you're not a church member, we're not asking you to give money here. And if you don't believe in the mission and vision of this church, please don't give your money here. Give it to where you do believe in the mission and vision. Because I'll tell you straight up, God provides all we need. But before you can give your money to Jesus, you gotta give yourself to Jesus. See, Jesus gave himself to you first, and so now you can give yourself to him. And so that's, the, that's my hope for you today is that there will be a heart of generosity. And if you don't have Jesus in your life, you're missing the greatest treasure. And I pray today that you find him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. And I pray God that the spirit of God would well up in our hearts a wealth of generosity. And I pray, God, that you would just continue to be in my life and in my heart to cultivate a heart of generosity and help me, God, to remember how you've been generous to me. Father, be the king of my heart. May I never forget how good you've been to me. And Father, would that just echo in this room today? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing about how good God is.